Hey there, beautiful people. Welcome to Novel Takes, the podcast where we lift the veil on business as usual. Join us for our novel takes on business, culture, and the art of getting things done. I'm partner and principal, Rachel Gans Boriskin. And I'm founder and principal, Sarah Patrick. It's time for a new novel take. Today is part of a two-part series about remote work, the opportunities, the challenges, and what might get lost in the shuffle when we migrate away from the traditional workspace. In March of 2020, most white-collar workers got a crash course in working from home. We figured out new platforms like Zoom, we experimented with camera angles in order to hide our laundry, and some of us came up with creative ways to keep our families from interrupting our calls. While there were definitely challenges in those early days, many workers began to appreciate the flexibility of work from home. Even when vaccines made it possible to return to the office, employees and employers began to rethink the pre-pandemic routines of 40-plus hours in the office. To get a sense of the state of remote work, Rachel and I interviewed three people with a diverse set of experiences with remote and hybrid work. They work in different industries in different states and are at different stages in their lives and careers. Although we recorded the interview separately, we have brought our guests into virtual conversation with each other. On today's episode, we'll focus on our panelists' experience with remote work, paying specific attention to the particular nature of their work and where they are in their career and life trajectories. I'll let our guests introduce themselves. My name is Brianna Brown. I currently am a project manager for a healthcare finance organization. I'm originally from New York City, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Kathy Harrington. I'm the Chief Operations and Talent Officer at the ACLU of Massachusetts. My name is Jessica Newworth, and I am a longtime nonprofiteer. So I've worked in museums and nonprofits for many years, primarily as a curator, as an exhibit developer. I've transitioned into sort of the administrative side of things. I'm now a grants writer and manager. And I'm working to sort of support the nonprofit world at the moment. We asked Brianna, Kafi, and Jessica about their experiences with remote work. For Jessica, the transition to remote work was dramatic. So the first morning, when I still had a job in the pandemic, I was working at a museum. We hadn't all been laid off yet. The very first morning of remote work, I woke up very early, as I always do. I re- rushed through all of the kinds of things you do to get ready because I, you know, I've got to get my daughter ready and myself ready. And, every, and then I realized I did, I had two hours and I didn't have to do anything for work for two hours. And I, you know, I sat down, I mean, I'm emotional now. I, you know, it was overwhelming to have that time back. It was the greatest experience. And I can tell you that I never, I've never taken that for granted since, you know, to not have to do that inevitable push and drive out the door and to get yourself and your child. And you arrive at work, you've already been doing something for four hours and you're exhausted and you got to work eight hours, right? For Brianna, it was different. She'd been working remotely since 2019 and she watched as her company and others around her navigated the experience. I think it's interesting because right before the pandemic, I think organizations were trying it out, feeling the like two days from home or like three days from home coming into the office. And then when the pandemic hit, they were like, oh, we already had something in place. So now, you know, you already have your your monitor at home. You already have your laptop at home. Just stay at home if you're not comfortable coming in. And I took that, ran with it, and I never went back to the office. <laughs> For Kafi, navigating remote work had an extra challenge because she was also new to her role at the ACLU. 
One of the things she had to do in her new role was develop the ACLU of Massachusetts remote work policy. It was a pretty unique experience for many reasons, not only because COVID was new to all of us, because this was in the, you know, in the wake of that. But I also had only just started the ACLU of Massachusetts and they had the staff had already gone fully remote by the time I started. And so when I came, I was not only acclimating and getting to know the individuals in the organization and the company culture and organizational culture, but we were all trying to make sense of the new landscape together. And so as we were thinking about that, we were thinking about not only what are the current needs at the time, but also trying to really think ahead about what might be our future needs. So I think that actually created a really a tough, but really interesting context for us to even have the conversation. As Kafi began to think about the remote work policy, there were many factors she had to consider. Of particular importance, the nature of the ACLU's work. I think that the biggest challenge was that, as I mentioned, most of our staff and employees, you know, in the course of their work are out in community. So right. whether those are folks who are litigating in the courtroom or working directly with clients, you know, who we are representing in court cases or working in the legislative sphere of, you know, being in at, you know, out and about with, with government, you know, lawmakers, right? So there's the relational aspect of or being in the field with the general public to do public education or, you know, interacting with members and donors, you know, just everything is relational. And so, as you might imagine, then so much of that is still importantly done in person or face to face. And so if you can imagine then that the, you know, this is a huge swath of folks we're interacting with, not all of them were set up to interact remotely. So that's a real shock to the system. So for all of the amazing benefits that, you know, a Zoom or video conferencing platform gave us, not everyone had equal access or ready access or easy access to the tools. And so even, you know, so let's just then assume once people have access, they're not maybe using it regularly. So it's clunky and it feels very awkward to use it, or maybe not everyone understands how it works or, you know, I mean, in, in, let alone like putting people down to breakout rooms, like it's just, just getting on, you know, <laughs> like the login and you have a, a decent Wi-Fi signal and, you know, and people are on the move and, you know, and so I think, you know, so what's not unique to us is that we were all adjusting in some way, but even though, as I mentioned, our team mem members were, you know, pretty adept and pretty adaptable. And you really, you know, jumped right into the, the technologies that connect us remotely. We're interacting with communities and, and folks and stakeholders that didn't have the same setup. So I would say that that is one of the biggest challenges, well, was one of the biggest challenges. For Jessica, who was working in a museum, the work itself also posed a challenge. There are pieces of, of the museum world which are in person because we serve our visitors, right? So we have to we have to engage with them. And because we believe not just collaborating with artists and with you know with our staff, but we believe in collaborating with the visitor. You know, when you when you co-create an exhibit with your visitors, when you when you're constantly responsive to their needs and changing things in the exhibit, it's a dynamic in-person process. Absolutely. And that that connection, though that time you spend interacting with your visitors and, and understanding what they need and want and how they're using what you've given them and what else you could give them that would make their experience better. Like you can't, you, you absolutely cannot get away from that. That is an in-person thing. 
and it's highly valuable. But you can support that work by behind-the-scenes work. Still, the closing of had its advantages in that it provided an opportunity for creativity. After I was laid off and started working with some of my other colleagues who were laid off, we did some consulting and we did a lot of, I don't know what you would call it, dreaming about what, what, are some of the, what would be some of the solutions for museums in this situation. And so not only is a pivot to virtual programming and a range of virtual exhibits that might live in Second Life or in which people take on avatars and interact, there's that whole piece of things. The piece that we were interested in developing were actually, we could, as exhibit designers and developers, create outdoor public moments of interaction. So pop-up exhibits where people could safely interact with strangers, with their colleagues, with their friends. So we could actually create moments and possibilities for people to be together. We were thinking of a whole range of possibilities that as museum exhibit developers and designers, we felt our creativity could really be harnessed to create a whole new world of experiences that could work. I just think to iterate on that, as well as the range of possibilities in the virtual world, would strengthen museums, whether there's a pandemic or not. People's satisfaction with remote work, whether initiated by the pandemic or not, can also be dependent on their living situations. When I first started working from home, I was in a really tiny Boston apartment living with my boyfriend. We were in a one bedroom. So like every other day we would switch off. Like I would get the little corner of the apartment or he would get the little office or whatever you call it. But there was no space. I think the drawback initially was space. So being able to hear every conversation, if I wanted to make lunch, it was like banging pots and people being like, can you mute yourself? But um, that was definitely the biggest drawback. And then not being able to separate, you know, like relaxation sleep from work because your desk is in your bedroom or you you just don't have space to live and separate the two so I think that those were the biggest drawbacks and then coming to Atlanta where there's more space you know we're at separate sides of the apartment so we don't even see each other really till like lunchtime and that that's great (laughs) it's kind of like going to work going to your office closing the door leave the pets out in the living room and you know no distractions While Brianna could close the door and her pet and partner knew to stay out, it can be a lot more complicated for parents. A little earlier, we heard Jessica talk about that first morning of remote work when she realized she didn't have to drive into the office. Well, we stopped that clip before she finished talking about it. Here's how the rest of her day went. But then, so around 10 a.m., I'm in the middle of my second Zoom meeting in the morning. My daughter comes in and says, without any care for the fact that I'm actually clearly, obviously, in a Zoom meeting. She says, I'm hungry. Can you make me something? And, you know, and it just, and it's always that, right? It's, it's, your family doesn't leave you alone. They don't believe you're really working because you're at home. So how could you be working? Like many of us, Jessica is a working parent trying to balance career and family. During the pandemic, Jessica, the mother of a school-aged child, was also expected to act as a teacher or teacher's aide. Add to that mental health worker, school adjustment counselor. As many people do, I have a child who has extreme mental health challenges and certainly did during the pandemic. And that played into sort of the motivation and the schoolwork piece and getting things done. And that absolutely was just a great deal of time. However, even while the pandemic added extra pressures, for Jessica, the flexibility she gained with remote work was worth it. 
again, what allowed me to be able to do that was the fact that I could set my own schedule. I could, in fact, work into the night and work early in the morning and then manage the middle of the day with my child. And that allowed it to happen. It's a grand trade-off that when you are here and at home and you are available, your family will seek you out in general. On the other hand, I have found that I can live with that trade-off, that fighting for my right to carve out time and space for myself to work at home because the benefit of the peace and relaxation of not having to drive myself out the door and drive for hours and fight traffic and all not having to do that gives me back enough time that I have more patience to manage the stuff at home. The kind of flexibility that Jessica appreciates about remote work is only possible if colleagues feel the same. As a remote worker pre-pandemic, Brianna found her team worked well because they had mutual understanding. Giving people grace and understanding, like if they need five minutes, sometimes they can't start the meeting right at 10 o'clock. Maybe they need to step out or use the bathroom or like tell their child to go take a nap or something. <laughs> like just understanding what the needs are, especially working from home because things pop up, things change. I think it gives a give and take of respect with who you're working with. That flexibility is also something that Brianna sees as key to any job she takes in the future. I enjoy flexibility. I enjoy getting in my car and going grocery shopping at noon if I want to, going for a walk in the mornings, especially thinking about having children, being able to, you know, turn around and pick them up and go play with them if need be, and just just being more present and having more time with my family. As Kafi developed a remote working policy, she wanted to make sure she was listening to the voices of people like Brianna and Jessica. She was also thinking about how the shift to remote work had benefits for another group at the ACLU. Our colleagues who works primarily in Western Massachusetts talks about how Zoom and video conferencing is an equalizer because the challenge of in-person work is that you want to be physically around and close to people. But when you're talking about the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts, because we as an affiliate, we're not just Boston focused, but now you're talking about, you know, communities that are further away from you. And so you're spending time in the car. So the benefit is you can be together at a moment's notice. So there's that benefit, but balancing that with not having that in-person interaction. And so I would say that from what I've, I've known, because my job is really very office centric and people focused, but that's been my observation and my learning uh, in talking to my colleagues who really spend so much of their time, effort, and focus outside of the, the walls of our physical office space. Of course, many workers have been negotiating distance prior to the pandemic. Before COVID-induced remote work, Jessica had seen the value of being able to work with people off-site. Working in museums, we don't have big budgets. In order to bring in collaborators and hire consultants, we often would do that work remotely because we could afford it that way. We didn't have to pay for them to come visit us. So I had a habit of working creatively and collaboratively with consultants and colleagues all across the country and across the world. But to have it a part of my daily life where I didn't have to leave the house, that happened with the pandemic. Another thing that changed for Jessica during the pandemic was her job. COVID forced closures of the museum she worked at, and she found herself job hunting. But luckily, the pandemic had also changed the nature of her job search. It meant that I could look far broadly. So museum work, you're limited in any region to a small number of museums. So really, you 
often if you don't have work in one museum, you have to move to another state to get another job. That's a challenge of this kind of work. Everybody was working remotely and museums were not seeing themselves coming back online for two to three years. And that is indeed what happened. So all museums were far more likely to be willing to take you on remotely and sort it out later. And so it opened up possibilities for me that I would not have had otherwise. And it also encouraged me to recognize that if I had to down the line, I might be able to commute a couple of days a little bit further and work at home. It has actually changed what's possible for me. And that's why I'm in my current role. For Jessica, the possibility of hybrid work has been essential. But Kafi notes that hybrid arrangements introduce additional complexity to work. We're all experiencing that same phenomenon, trying to manage our outside of work responsibilities and needs alongside their work-related responsibilities and needs. We're all doing it in different ways. And so whether we are on Zoom together, on a phone together, communicating through email or in physical space together, we're not in sync. We're not in sync. And not that I think that it's possible to be perfectly in sync, but because now that flexibility for all the benefit, it actually creates complexity because people are setting boundaries in different ways for what they need to get done. And it's not nine to five is not as common to us anymore. And so I actually believe that hybrid is harder than fully remote, but even that fully remote, when you're spending time in your home or in a space that is not in office shared with others, you're having to make decisions in a different way. And everybody has a different setup. Everybody has different resources, different comfort levels. But I think that that's actually an ongoing challenge. Grappling with such complexities was part of Kafi's task for the ACLU as she imagined work arrangements for the future. In order to capture all the various voices, Kafi surveyed employees, hoping to get an idea of their preferences and needs. We used a survey to think about what was helpful for folks in the web support, but also we were learning about how they work, really. And at the same time we were thinking about our remote policy, we were also moving to a brand new office. So it really actually created a new landscape, not only figuratively, but literally a new space and environment we were co-creating. And so that made it really interesting as well. So as we were surveying staff, we were also asking about how do you work over the course of the day? What types of work are you doing over the course of the day? Is it meetings with one or two people? Is it a lot of conference calls or phone calls? Is it a lot of heads down time? And so what would you estimate as the percentage of time that you're doing those things? And that helped to inform how we were laying out the office and literally the floor plan, how we were mixing up office space versus workstations versus convening spaces versus flex spaces. So as we were thinking about remote work, we were really thinking about work in general for our team and the different types of work, not just functionally, that our team engages in, but also the type of work that we're each doing and that we need to do and what we need to do it effectively. Being intentional about the development of work culture is important, whether the work is remote or face-to-face. The truth is that most organizations are not set up for this. They don't put intentionality into the in-person culture building and they don't do it remotely. The company Brianna works for is about 80% work from home. And they strive to make employees, both in the office and remote, feel connected. In the office, there's plenty of opportunities for lunch and learns and popping into an exec's office to talk with them. But at home, you really have to be intentional about 
setting up what we call coffee chats or like reaching out to people in the organization who you want to learn from. There's also virtual parties, virtual happy hours. And I know they sound cringy. A lot of the times having to like cheers with a drink on Fridays with your coworkers. But sometimes it can be a positive because you never know who will show up to those Zoom meetings. It could be like the head of client services or like the VP of finance. And the schmoozing has some positives if you play it right. (laughs) But when the time comes to come in for a retreat or like team bonding experience, those 80% who live farther away do come in and it's a good time. Even when a company is being intentional about culture building, it can be complicated. In any organization, there may be people at different stages in their careers and from different backgrounds as well. I have been doing this long enough that I have some confidence in myself and in my ability to connect to others and to build these networks. And if I were just learning how to do that, I think that that would be very difficult. I think that if I were entering a workplace which did not represent my culture or my religion or whatever, if I was entering a workplace of strangers, I would be less likely to feel that I could advocate for myself and fight for my rights to do the different things. Also, I would be much more likely to not be able to find my way and build my social network. Brianna, as a young professional and a Black woman, has certainly encountered these challenges. My company is in the Midwest, which is a predominantly white area of the country. Many of the people in the organization are white. They do have the American home, the two children, the wife, the doodle dog. So finding your place in that arena can be difficult when you look around and you realize that the people who are Black or people of color have been hired within the last two or three years. And the people who are white and have been at the company for 20 or upwards of 25 years. And it can be difficult to break down the door and join this kind of group that they've had established for so long. And when I think about like happy hours or, you know, talking over Zoom with a group of men who I have nothing in common with, just talking about like hockey or like pickleball. Like I just don't, I don't know any of those things. It's just, it's so difficult. So just trying to like find something to connect with people in an organization, you know, is, was not created for you. It can be very difficult establishing connections with people when you want a promotion, when you know that you might not be at the top of the list because there are men who will just say they deserve the job. Because they're like, well, I've showed up to work. I've done my job. Like, hey, don't you think you should pay me more? Whereas a woman will be like, I, I feel like I, I've been doing my best. Like, you give me any feedback. How do you think I'm doing? Balance is very difficult to figure out. And maybe it's because I'm a younger employee. Maybe that's a different level of diversity, too, of being willing to establish myself in the midst of people who have been doing this for a while. In addition to the challenges of finding your way in an organization that is not created for you, as Brianna sees it, remote work has particular challenges for people of color. I think there's more pressure to be kept on Zoom working from home because, you know, being a Black woman, it takes longer to do my hair. It takes longer to get ready in the morning to be camera ready. Whereas my white counterparts can just, you know, put a brush through their hair and put in a ponytail. I think the pressure to appear professional in a white working world is very difficult. Even selecting the right background, making sure there's no distraction behind me or making sure I'm wearing an appropriate top, something like that. Those are all things that I compare myself with other people every day. 
it, it hasn't gotten easier. And I, I'm like, maybe it's the lighting. I don't know. Maybe I need to adjust that. But it's just, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. And I think about overcoming it a lot every day. Creating a culture where everyone feels comfortable is something that Kafi is also thinking about. The question that I, I work with in this respect for myself is, how can we continue to create an environment where people feel safe? They feel you know, physically safe, but also emotionally safe, where people feel that they are supported and where they feel heard. That's the lens that I have every day. We'll pick up this conversation on our next episode and explore our guest views on the challenges of managing employees, the opportunities for remote collaboration, and the work that needs to be done to create a truly inclusive work environment. We want to thank Brianna, Jessica, and Kafi, who are generous with their time and insights. To learn more about them, you can check out their full bios on our website, thinknovel.com. We also want to say a special thank you to Brianna, who took time to talk to us the week of her wedding. Congratulations, Brianna. Her bio is on our website with her new last name, Brianna Hatch. If this conversation has piqued your interest and you want to hear more about what we have to say, stay tuned for our other episodes. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, please rate and review us. Give us some love. And if you're curious about what we do over at Novel or think we could help you or your organization, check us out or send us an inquiry over at thinknovel.com. That's T-H-I-N-K-N-O-V-L.com. That's it for us. Shout out to everyone who helped us make this show. This is Novel Takes.